Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in an authentic conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders and category designers with a different mind. Now, over the last three years or so, we've all been through one of the craziest, most challenging times in modern history. And we've all had to contend with uh, all of the obvious things, as well as a pretty significant, challenging economic environment. On today's oddcast, we take stock of what just happened and what we can all learn from it. You see, we're going to go deep with the legendary author and journalist Liz Hoffman. She used to be a senior reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and now she's a business and finance editor at the new uh, news startup called Semaphore.com. That's S-E-M-A-F-O-R.com. And she's got a riveting new book out that I really enjoyed. It's called Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. By the end of this episode with Liz, you'll learn how Brian Chesky did a legendary job leading Airbnb through the pandemic, the secret strategy that the airlines used to survive, why you're never as liquid as you think you are, and some key learnings for dealing with business and personal crisis. Liz's new book is great. She's got some legendary insights and she shares them here. Ah, I can promise you this. Your career will thank you for listening to Liz on this episode. Now, the future belongs to the creative capitalist, people who can go beyond knowledge work to create new categories of knowledge, new, if you will, creative capital. To thrive today, legendary companies are using thought leadership, creative capital to design and dominate their categories. And that's why you need a mighty network. You see, on Mighty Networks, you can bring together your community, your memberships, your online courses, webinars, events, and content all in one place under your brand on a platform that you control. We believe around here that today, thought leadership and content and community are the critical front ends to designing and dominating a legendary category over time. And our friends, Mighty Networks, are the category queens in providing a platform to do exactly that. So if you want to dominate your category and mobilize your community to drive new growth, check out MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. So what is it that makes you a whiskey gal? You know, I think I had a boyfriend in Chicago like a million years ago, um, in my very early 20s, who was, uh, was from uh, Nebraska and was a whiskey guy and uh, just became kind of my drink of choice. But uh, but uh, less and less as I get older, I just, you know. <laughs> well, I have an extra soft spot in my uh, my whiskey stained heart for gals who drink whiskey and bourbon and the like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm excited to do this. This is uh, this will be fun. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it very much. I want you to know uh, I deeply appreciate your work. Um, I think that uh, Crash Landing is a very important book, and thank you for writing it. Thank you for having me. It's uh, It's been great to see it out in the wild, and you work on something 
for this long and then you're just kind of walking through an airport. No, there it is. So it's, uh, it's Isn't been that fun. an incredible experience the first time you see your book in an airport? Yes. Or the first time somebody asks you to autograph your book? You know, the first time I was signing a book, I opened the cover and I was like, wait, is this like signing? Am I signing a check? Because, you know, my, my formal signature, my government signature is Elizabeth, but that's not my violence. And I was like, what do I do here? It was, it was very funny to have a sort of pen in hand. And um, I went with Liz. So, yeah, my autograph signature is different than my check signature. I, I think a lot of people are like that. I think it would have to be. Although both of them are pretty much indescribable from the scribblings of a drunken <laughs> three-year-old. So. <laughs> my my wife fakes my signature on all sorts of legal documents on a fairly regular basis. It is crazy basis. that we let that be like your your official thumbprint, even though it's not that hard to fake. And there's any like high schooler ever tried to get out of <laughs> you know, forge a parent signature on something. It's not that hard. It's not that Not hard. that I had ever done that, but... Um, not that you would know, of course. Me neither. Now, I have a bazillion questions uh, about your book. It's so insightful. And I, the interview, you know, this is a book that only could be written by you because it, it takes a Wall Street reporter. It takes a storyteller, a great interviewer. I mean, the way you share stories, the Airbnb stories, by way of example, I found captivating. And you sort of put us what feels like in the room with Brian when he realizes that his entire Chinese business just stopped and and so forth. And so uh, I got a thousand questions for you, but I'm curious off the top, you know, where would you like to start, Liz? Oh, boy. Let me think about it. I mean, I approach this project, like you said, I'm not an academic. I'm not an economist. There are people smarter than me about the sort of big uh, theoretical questions here, but I'm I'm a journalist. I talk to people. I find compelling stories. I pressure test them, and then I try to present them in a way that makes sense to people. And uh, and this was I knew this wanted I wanted this to be a narrative process or narrative project. And they really bring people in. And the longer I reported and and sat with the pandemic itself, I really wanted to take people back to the early days because I you know became so fraught and toxic and this just like long Groundhog's Day funk, right, from which we still have kind of never emerged. Uh, but but you have to remember those early days, they were scary and weird and strangely earnest in a way that I think got lost in the fog of, of what followed. And so I really wanted to start at the beginning. And what do you mean by strangely earnest? I feel about this a lot because... You know, I live in New York City, and it was, you know, an early epicenter um, of the pandemic. And, you know, I had been coming back. I'd taken a family vacation to Florida and was coming back, flying from Tampa on March 8th. And I remember my sister-in-law had, had like, stolen some wet naps from Chick-fil-A, uh, as one does in the South. And I was, like, wiping down the armrest and feeling sort of silly and kind of winking and sort of odd. And then, you know, three days later, I left the Wall Street Journal's newsroom and wasn't back for two years, basically. So, um, you know, we we banged pots out of windows and we there was a minute there where we fist bumped and it was sort of funny. Like, there was a weird emotional stew of those early days of the pandemic that were, I think, have come to either be completely memory hold or sort of viewed um cynically as sort of 
overly saccharine and emotionally charged. But I think they were really, they were very real. And when I was trying to bring people into the minds of the characters in this book, I think it was just helpful to to set the emotional pitch of it all. And of course, it, it wasn't that long ago, but it was so dramatic and so much has transpired both, and of course, in all of our personal lives, but in the world since then. And, you know, now we have a horrible war in Europe and a very weird economy and all sorts of other things that are now going on in a, uh, I had, I, uh, I've been talking to some doctors recently and I said, can, can, are we allowed to say post pandemic? And I'm not, I'm not sure the doctors quite agree, but we're, if we're not post pandemic, we're close to post pandemic, I think. But remembering those days, reading your book, I was saying this to my wife. I was like, Fuck. It was crazy, and it wasn't that long ago. And it feels like, this may sound like a weird um, connection, but just before COVID, one of my best friends was murdered. And there's many horrible things about having somebody you love murdered, as you can imagine. One of the things with COVID, though, we had sort of simultaneously two things. Number one, trying to focus on uh, doing everything we could to support law enforcement and catching his killers, which they have, um, and then COVID itself. And the combination of those two things meant that we never really got a chance to mourn him. And I lost a, a couple other friends during COVID. And we never really got proper funerals or those sorts of things. And so it just... I guess my point is there was so much that stopped and it feels like there is a bit of a mourning, whether it's for an individual or for time lost or, or for what had uh, transpired to us during COVID that has, has yet to be done. Uh, am I getting uh, too emotional in my old age here, Liz, or, or do a lot of people feel this way that there was, uh, there's a mourning that hasn't really happened yet? You're hearing a little out of my sort of area of expertise, but I do think, you know, there was a fantastic long form piece. I think it was in the New York Times magazine a couple of weeks ago, and it was about this. It was about the sort of delayed reckoning with what was uh, a global trauma um, and, you know, people's sort of ability or willingness to kind of revisit and, and sit with it. Um you know, to bring it back a little bit into the area that I'm remotely equipped to talk about, and there's just a broader reckoning, right? That is, it was this, we hit pause on a lot of things um, mm -hmm. and then kind of tried to unpause and it's been incredibly bumpy. I remember kind of going back out into the world. So like that's summer or maybe or in the fall. And I had talked to my friends who had very similar experiences and it was like, do I know how to do this? Do I know how to be a human? Yeah. Am I talking too loud? Like there was weird stuff um, that I think just has not like been ironed out fully. And and to your point about whether we're post pandemic or not, like when I started this project, which was in the spring of 2020, I thought like most people that it would be over at the end of the year or at the very least Remember, that it was would it was be. it six weeks to flatten the curve or yeah. four weeks to flatten the curve or some, something like that some sort of a slogan something like that i mean the 
Trump, uh, Trump was saying it would be over by Easter. And, and but, but even if you didn't believe any of that, there was a sense that at some point it would be over. You would get one of those Hollywood scene clappers and that would be it. And, you know, I think we all experienced that that was not true. And I sort of had a, another layer of experiencing that, which was I was writing and reporting and like looking toward an end point that just never came. Um, and it was just a strange way to approach uh, a project like this because it just hmm. never ended. Yeah. I remember, was it, it was it July of 21 when the vaccines were, it must have been July of 21 when the vaccines were rolling out en masse and, and Biden said, you know, Independence Day in the United States was going to be our independence from the virus. And then, and then shortly thereafter, Omicron took off. And so it just seemed like we kept wanting the Hollywood ending. And so did our leadership, whether it was Trump or, or Biden, they seemed to have happy years. And, and we would build up into these things we thought were some big massive turning point only to get whacked shortly thereafter. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, just as humans were, we're kind of, we're built for, clarity and finality and, you know, demarcations that sort of makes us comfortable. And frankly, it's, as a reporter, that's what we're most comfortable with too, right? Like, here's a thing that happened. I'm going to tell you about it. Um, and and stories just, have beginning, middles, and ends. Stories right? have beginnings, middle, and ends. And this book has a beginning, a middle, <laughs> and an end. But actually, you know, I, I'd gotten some comments from early readers and I hadn't really thought about it this way, but I think the sort of pacing of the book kind of captures that feeling, which is, you know, you've read it. The first half of the book takes place in about six or eight weeks. Um, and the back sort of half or third, it kind of jumps around a little bit. It becomes a little more choose your own adventure. It's a little more thematic. It's, you know, it looks at return to work. It looks at supply and demand. It looks at, you know, kind of the great uh, resignation and realignment. It, it's just the pacing sort of followed what I think was we'd all kind of recognize as our own lived experiences, which was it was crazy and interesting and awfully exciting and unifying and weird early. And then it just became this funk that just hung over everything for you know, three years now. Well, and the economic funk and, of course, the political funk. I mean, who would have ever thought? I mean, I guess I'm just a naive idiot, but that that data and science and masks and vaccines and would become so radically political. I, I don't know that I'd ever quite experienced in my time on the planet uh, a healthcare issue become so radically politicized and the conversation stopped being about um, what we knew, what we didn't know, uh, you know, how we could best tackle this together. And it got to be a lot of uh, very weird, um, accusatory, uh, political tin hat. I mean, it just it got real Alex Jones real fast. Yeah, I mean, from the health crisis, I think you'd probably have to go back to the AIDS, the early days of the AIDS crisis to see something that felt similar. Um, but but no, I, that's it. You know, when I think about my the way I approach my work and and the world um, through a fundamentally economic and, and financial lens, you know, starting in the nineties, um, there was this sense that the future was increasingly liberal, both politically and economically. It was borderless. This is the era of the eurozone and and NAFTA and right. This idea that by engaging with China. 
uh, economically that, you know, the, that political reforms would follow this sort of growing middle class. And that was already, frankly, especially with the benefit of hindsight, proving to be much uh, less true than we thought before the pandemic. Think about Brexit, which is 2016, the election of Donald Trump here on an economic nationalist platform, 2016. But I think the pandemic can sort of firmly be its tombstone, that like that assumption that we were that we were on this steady march towards this global, liberal, borderless uh, state and economy is just not true. It's so fascinating you say that because I remember when the war broke out, people brought up the, the Thomas Friedman quote. And if I'm getting it wrong, maybe you'll remind me, but it was something around that no two countries with a McDonald's had ever gone to war. Yeah, actually, I wrote about this a couple of months ago. Yeah. To me, that quote is emblematic of the sentiment you're describing, that we're becoming more global, we're becoming more integrated, we're becoming more interdependent, we're becoming, even if we're not politically, ideolog ideologically aligned, we found uh, you know, a Venn diagram where the, some of the circles meet, where we can all kind of do business and, and collaborate and not kill each other and so forth. Um, and starting with COVID, starting before COVID, to your point, and and now we now realize, wait a minute, that 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 wasn't true, or and so did that not work, or did it work for a while, or how do you think about this sense that we had from the late '80s into the '90s that the world was sort of more coming together, and now it doesn't feel that way um, at all. You're yeah, this kind of end of history, right? This idea that. Um you know, when I had written about this Thomas Friedman thing a couple of weeks ago, you're right, it's the McDonald's theory of peace. It wasn't actually true when he said it. Uh, Britain and Argentina both had McDonald's during the Falklands War pretty clearly. Um, there were a couple of things around the edges. But yeah, it, it sort of neatly, probably too neatly captured this idea um, that, you know, economic linkages could pull political and cultural uh, cohesion in it in their wake. I think it 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 was true. It wasn't it wasn't all a fever dream. You know, coming out of the 2008 crisis is actually probably where a lot of its unraveling begins because it it sort of was the origin story for these fundamentally reactionary and and nationalist political movements. And I don't know kind of what COVID will what kind of political movements will come out of COVID, but but yeah, that kind of spraying of of this global compact clearly came out of the the last great economic crisis in two thousand and eight. And you had this real sort of uh, hawkishness, this real bitterness. Um, but the pandemic really just poured poured hot fuel on that fire. Um, you know, the only bipartisan issue in Washington right now is the sort of America First agenda. Well, and and maybe we could go there. So. In my lifetime, I, I wouldn't have anticipated this. So the thinking with China was, if if I understood it, was although there's some ideological differences and although they do some very horrible things to their people that we do not agree with in any way, shape or form, by doing business with them, we achieve a couple of things. We achieve a level of interdependence so that we decrease the likelihood of violence. And we also help their people because if we don't do business with them and they have, you know, uh, 
half a billion, three quarters of a billion living in, in poverty or some you know horrible way, that that would not be good and that would be bad for their people and bad for their economy, which increases instability in the world and so forth and so on. And so the bottom line is if we do business with China, while they won't maybe implement our ideology, their people will be better off and will decrease the likelihood of war. And now everybody sort of says, I mean, to put it mildly, fuck China. They're against us. They're doing all these things to us and we no longer want to do business with them. And as somebody who spent more than 35 years in the technology industry, it's amazing for me to see not only are we stopping doing business with China, we're stopping buying from China. And there's been a, a 180 in the tech industry uh, around China. And so I'm curious kind of how you synthesize the U.S.-China relationship now. I think you've accurately you know, described the thinking, which was that by forcing China to play in the economic sphere and the same rules as everybody else, you know, the idea of you know, WTO and sort of, you know, bringing them into the fold that, that, um, that their society would start to look more like everyone else's. And, and it wasn't an insane bet, like in history, as you've had sort of increasingly wealthier, better educated middle classes tend to demand uh, a freer society from their governments, seemed fair. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, just from the point of view of, of if you're running a big multinational company coming out of COVID, as a lot of you know the CEOs in the book are, uh, it's just good business sense to to decouple, to diversify. You've heard about onshoring, reshoring, friendshoring, right? Just the you know a, a phrase that most people outside of the business community had never heard of before COVID. Just supply chain, it's real, and it, it's got to be more resilient than it's been, both from a logistical point of view, but also now increasingly a geopolitical one. That you know Beijing can just say we're not letting that stuff out of the port for whatever reason. Uh, and there goes a quarter's worth of production for Ford. So, you know, you have to think about that stuff in a way you didn't before. And vis-a-vis -vis the hot one now, which, or at least one of the hot ones now, which is Taiwan and chip manufacturing, uh, you know, I think during COVID, a lot of people woke up and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, why are many of our drugs produced in India not here? And if something's wrong in the supply chain, we're, we're, we're fucked or PPE as an example, right? It was all in China. Well, if China decided not to send us gowns and masks and gloves, we were in a lot of trouble, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now more recently, of course, in the tech world, um, we've realized that maybe Huawei is a scary company and that may, maybe the lines between private industry and the um, Chinese government are not very thick at all. And so with a ton of internet traffic traveling over uh, Japanese, uh, oh, excuse me, Chinese uh, chips, uh, this is a scary thing. And then, of course, TikTok and, and, and. And so now we have a shutdown of that and we have our government giving massive tax incentives to U.S. and non-U.S. companies to build chips here. And, of course, the impending possible doom of TikTok Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so, how do you think about all that's transpiring now, uh, post COVID, as it relates to China? I think one way to look at the pandemic is an accelerator of trends that were already underway. Uh, I think the the decoupling of the U.S. and China is one of those things. 
I mean, China's autocratic tendencies are not secret. They've certainly been amplified and um, become more apparent in the last couple of years. But the pandemic doesn't fundamentally have anything to do with, you know, their their treatment of ethnic minorities or, uh, you know, Xi Jinping's, you know, sort of consolidation of power. Um, I just think it became more of an economic imperative. Um, and the U.S. is fundamentally a capitalist country. And so economic forces tend to really, um, really drive behavior here in a way that they certainly don't in China. So, um, you know, the government could could can do this with a heavy hand. They may end up banning TikTok. I don't really understand logistically quite how that would work. Um, it's it, there's it's a technological challenge to make that work. But like, or you can um, just follow the economic incentives, which, as you say, you know, a lot of the corporate world is waking up and realizing I don't really want to be there anyway. Yeah. Now, one of the things I found fascinating in your book is um, you give us a window into what extraordinary leaders do in times of absolute existential crisis. And having lived through a number of them before in my professional and personal life, and then, of course, coming through the pandemic and with the companies and and relationships I have in the business world, spent a lot of time dealing with those exact same questions. And one of the things that fascinates me, I've been waiting so long to ask you this question, is what insight do you have about the people who rise up in these situations and the many who, and I've had this happen to me in my life, they, they almost appear to melt in front of your eyes. They just can't continue with the pressure. Just they can't take it. And so the reporting in this book is outstanding. And I'm curious, what insights might you have for business leaders on if I want to be a, a leader who rises up as opposed to one who um, melts? What insight might you have for me, Liz? One takeaway I had was make a lot of decisions and make them fast you know, CEOs can strategize and murder board an idea to death. But, you know, the pandemic didn't allow for that. And you had incredibly compressed timeframes. You had to make a lot of decisions quickly. And the answer is most of these guys, and they're mostly guys, got where they are by being pretty good at this. And if if you bat 60, 40 or 70, 30 on decisions, um, you can iterate your company in a positive direction, you know, fairly quickly. Um you know, the other, I just sort of basic blocking and tackling, but you are never as liquid as you think, right? We learn this lesson every 10 years from one direction or another, but that um, just like get the money and get it fast. And, you know, I tell the story in the book of the CEO of Hilton, Chris Nassetta, who became, it became the first blue chip company to pull their lines of credit from the banks in early March. And they took some heat for it. You know, there's this idea that they were sort of inciting a panic and, you know, the, the, Chris had called his his CFO and said, I want every dollar that I'm contractually entitled to, and I don't care what the banks have to say about it. Um, and they got $2 billion and they, you know, that was enough to get them, get them through. But it was a news story at the time. You know, there were headlines about it. And someone had sent one of the stories to Chris and he responded and said, you know, just wait a week. This isn't even going to be worth writing about. And he was right. So being, you know, early on the, on things like that, um, and just trying to see around corners and not, chew over a decision forever um 
I think that, look, you should never like run a multinational company on gut, but I think this showed that there was a lot of sort of like processed fat baked into a lot of corporate decision making that doesn't need to be there. So interesting that you say that, Liz, because of course, uh, here in Silicon Valley, we just went through the SVB crisis and it was that in less than 48 hours in the very beginning, right? Because shit started to get weird Wednesday, Thursday. It was all over by Friday plus or minus lunchtime. And then, of course, we had the weekend to try to scenario plan. And you had to scenario plan every scenario, including that you weren't going to get your SVB money for some meaningful period of time. And, you know, that was another example of me personally witnessing extraordinary leadership and extraordinary incompetence in real time at the same time. <laughs> it's quite it's quite something. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot in the last couple of weeks. I was sort of right in the middle of reporting on that story um, because it's, it, I guess my view on it is a little bit at odds with what I just said and sort of the story I just told about Hilton. Um, you know, there's this sense, especially from perhaps the East Coast, looking out at Silicon Valley and thinking, man, that whole thing was just like a big self-own, right? You had these startups and these VC investors just whipping themselves into a frenzy and, um, and ended up destroying, you know, one of their biggest allies and partners in the in the financial community. Um, that said, I I don't really begrudge anyone who says I should get in that line, right? I mean, that's that's the real fundamental uh, psychological nature of a bank run. And in the end, that's what the government is there for. They are the lender of last resort. And we use that word a lot, but if you're at the last resort, you're in a pretty bad spot. So um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think everyone sort of acted rationally there. Um, and I was sort of tickled to see kind of the the financial system act like kind of reverting to its 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 ways. You know, I had a story over that weekend, I think, that um a bunch of hedge funds and some investment banks were were out offering to buy up the deposit the trap deposits of these uh of these startups and um you know, it's like never changed Wall Street. Like they're just like the financial system sort of, it it chugs along and it does what it does and the government did what it did. And, you know, ultimately I think we are, you know, much closer to the end of that story than than the beginning of it. And I think this will be a pretty self-contained crisis. I hope so. And I, I was, um, you know, there was a group of us here who worked pretty hard that weekend, um, both on what you might call air wars and ground wars, one helping the companies that we're involved with. And two, trying to do things to uh, hopefully nudge our government in what we believed was the right direction. And, and uh, I don't know if everybody felt this way, Liz, but uh, I remember that weekend very, very well. And I remember waiting that Sunday, knowing full well that if, um, if the government didn't backstop the depositors by the time the um, Asian markets open – all hell was going to break loose. And it was just, so I remember that, that Sunday afternoon very well. And my wife said, look, let's just go to one of our favorite restaurants, put everything away and just have a nice meal, have a nice beer, glass of wine. And we went to do that. And we were sitting in that nice restaurant when my phone started blowing up. And of course, uh, within the nick of time, the government made what I believe was the right decision. And the interesting thing that I think positive that has come out of that is a very robust discussion around the banking system and the FDIC and this sort of 
dialogue that I think now is very important, which is most people in the United States of America did not understand that when you make a bank deposit, um, they don't have your money. You're actually making them a loan. That's actually what you're doing in exchange for services. Um, and they take risk with that loan. And the average American didn't know that. And so this discussion about um, how much risk should a bank be allowed to take when you make a deposit and how much uh, protection should you have and should this be clearer and should there be different kinds of accounts and should there be new new categories of products in the finance, you know, uh, d does there need to be a product called I put my money in here and it's 100% protected? Well, I think a lot of us would say there needs to be that product now, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess my point is, and I'd be curious to your reaction, I think a lot of the discussion post SVB has been very positive about potential changes we could make in the banking system. But what do you think? Uh, I agree with you that that backstopping the depositors was the right thing to do. You know, I, I, I think I was sort of bemused. Again, I think it was the right thing to do. And I, I understand why the, the tech community was loudly calling for it. That said, you, you go back in their Twitter feeds a little bit and they're railing about how the government is the problem and there's sort of techno-libertarianism and we don't need them and they're just in the way. And so I, I think there's a little bit of a retirement there. I, I would agree with some of that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, like I think the outcome was right, but like I think there should be a little navel-gazing in that community about how they feel about government support. Um, you know, there are no there are no ideologues in foxholes, right? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate coming out of this you know, that um, certainly the, the progressive wing says banking should be boring, right? They shouldn't be taking risk with your money, which I get. But the reason that banks exist is to take risks. This is like sort of basic and boring, but banks do what's called risk transformation. They take your money, which is an overnight deposit. They have to give it back to you anytime you want. And through some alchemy of finance, they turn it into things like 30-year mortgages, right? And, you know, long-term, you know, swaps on Italian bonds. And some of that serves like a real um, substantive economic purpose. Some of it is just speculation. But that that is the game. And so no bank in the world has enough money in its vaults to cover its obligations. But that's a feature, not a bug of the system. And actually, there was some, um, there's something called narrow banking, which I'm not an expert on, but there was this idea that a bank would start up and it would take your deposits and it would turn around and park them at the Federal Reserve so that actually they are doing nothing. They are taking no risk with your money. They're just holding on to it for you, perhaps with some inflation protection, you know, some little interest around it. But um, the Fed was not a fan of that. The Fed doesn't want to be the savings bank of America. That's not what they're there for. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a, just a, of a knowledge gap between what people think banking is and what it actually is. And then there's certainly a very fair discussion, like something obviously went wrong here. You know, there's a debate now whether it was a regulatory problem, which is were the rules too loose, or was it a supervisory problem, which is were the cops not paying attention? Um, a little bit of both. I tend to think more of the latter, actually. Um, you know, even if Silicon Valley Bank had been treated for a lot of regulatory purposes like JP Morgan, it actually wouldn't have captured this risk, um, which is largely a problem with interest rates and uh, very, very poor risk management on the bank's part. 
But yeah, like no, no bank has enough money to give it all back. That's but not most how people works. don't know it's that. Not how it's designed to work. Yes. Most, and, and it's, it's, like, it's I, maybe I, worth re. Go ahead. Go ahead. Absolutely, it's maybe worth revisiting the uh, the FDIC cap, and clearly that's where we are now. But it sort of doesn't matter to me because, like, these all just create incentives, and people then play to the test and. You know, the argument against bailing out the depositors at Silicon Valley is that these were actually mostly not mom and pops. They were, you know, startups that were just like didn't know how money worked and didn't realize that they needed to diversify their their commercial bank accounts. That said, the actual product is a retail savings product, and you can't expect retail depositors to be bank risk managers. That's not their job. And if you're foisting that responsibility on them, then why do we have banks? Then like, I should just be making a loan to you to buy your house, right? right? Exactly the point, which is it is a, a, a reasonable expectation when somebody makes a deposit in a checking account, savings account, a normal operating account that a normal person would have. If you and I deposit $1,000 into one of those accounts, we want to live in a world where it is a realistic expectation that we can write checks uh, up to $1,000 on that account and that money will be there or we could go to the branch and get the money or transfer the money. Or th- 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 we want to live in a world where that expectation is a normal, uh, effective one because the system doesn't work without that trust. At the same time, um, yes, you need to be sophisticated, um, but a startup that's raised 25 or $100 million in Silicon Valley also, I don't think should be expected to have the level of treasury acumen that Walmart, Walmart, um, or, or or Target or Pfizer has. I totally agree. I'll po- I'll poke at that in one place, which is there has been a huge amount of hubris in Silicon Valley. They think they're better. They think they're smarter. They think they have achieved some kind of escape velocity from the basic laws of business and finance. And Silicon Valley Bank really enabled that. They were they were the drug dealer of that particular brand of hubris. And they convinced these companies that they were one of them. You hear their executives talk about the bank as an innovator, talking about things like burn rate, which is a startup term. And I cover banks. And I'm like, I don't want to hear my bank talking about, you know, using startup, startup finance terms. I want them talking about capital and asset liability matching and all that stuff. So I do think there was a little bit of uh, the snake eating its own tail here. Um, And I do think that depositors were a bit silly here. But I think to your point, a world where people have to think about their basic savings accounts and whether they're safe is just stupid, but also injects so much friction into the economy. It just, it doesn't work. Yes. Yes. Now, you feature a lot of individuals uh, in your book. You tell stories in this book. Um, You know, are there one or two individuals you want to highlight for me maybe and tease out why you decided to feature them in the way that you did in, uh, in Crash Landing? I found Airbnb's story incredibly compelling. You know, this was one of the big Silicon Valley unicorns. They had been expecting they were going to go public in 2020. And the CEO, Brian Chesky, had spent the holidays coming into that year with a big stack of prospectuses, kind of highlighting things he liked and didn't like, sketching out Airbnb's story, right? This is the biggest moment in the company's life. 
And and the theme he had landed on was that this was going to be the year of connection and that Airbnb was going to be the venue for that to happen. And that just always stuck with me, you know, as I was reporting that story and writing it. Um, you know, they were obviously bookings fell off a cliff. They raised a lot of money. And I actually, I spent a fair amount of time explaining this this fundraising process in the book, in part because it was fun. It was really interesting. A lot of the, a lot of the people involved had sort of decamped to Hawaii and were kind of scheming out there. But um, in part because you seem to l- was, like to write about people going to Hawaii and and, and Cabo and shit. <laughs> I'm like, listen, I, these are these are my people. These are the people I cover. Um, uh, but um, but also because I remember at the time when that deal happened, thinking it was crazy that this company is dead. The idea in April, late March, early April, when they were fundraising of 2020, that you would leave your home go to a stranger's home. I mean, it just seemed insane. And I I didn't get it. And and I, I say that because, you know, for a lot of the 2010s, sort of the, the bulk of my financial reporting career, there wasn't a lot of value in being contrarian. There weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of room for disagreement. Um, there wasn't a lot of, like, everything just went up. We could talk about why. It's basic macroeconomics and interest rate policy. But like investors, there wasn't a lot of value add to investors having an idea that was different than other people's idea. And um, the investors in, in Airbnb, Silver Lake, and Sixth Street uh, zigged when everyone zagged, and they made a ton of money. And uh, and then the next chapter of that story is that you know the sort of consumer capitalism finds a way through, and it turns out people did want to travel, but they didn't want to go to a weekend hotel in Vegas. They wanted to go. You know, I spent a couple months of the pandemic upstate in New York. And Airbnb saw that, pivoted quickly, made that their business, and ended up going public at more than $100 billion valuation after all. So it's just really a bookended story that I think um, sort of explains what a lot of parts of the economy were thinking and doing. And, and um, yeah, I just I, I always found that one compelling. And I appreciate that you wrote about it. I found um, them compelling forever. I know some of their original um, VCs. And I was just checking as you're talking, Brian Chesky's only 41 years old. So did that play into any of this in your thinking in terms of why you wanted to profile him and Airbnb so much? This was kind of a, a strange book process. I think most reporters who write books, they have a beat and a big story happens on that beat and they crush it for six months. And then they say, oh, I should write a book about that. This was not that. Um there is no reporter at the Wall Street Journal or anywhere whose beat is every company on the planet, right? So I think when I set out to do this, I said, okay, like, what's my cinematic universe here? And I knew I wanted to check a couple boxes. It was obvious you needed to spend some time with the airlines. That was a huge part of the story. And a lot of the book is on that that rescue. Um, I knew I wanted a sort of a traditional investment bank, um, just sort of what I had covered for years. I wanted... Uh, some kind of leisure, some kind of travel company, um, which is how I landed on Hilton. And I wanted a young company that was um, trying to disrupt something. Uh, and I don't, I don't actually think that tech by and large had a particularly interesting pandemic. I'm not sure that, for example, Apple had a uniquely compelling pandemic story. But Airbnb sat at that nexus of a young company that had a just an incredibly existential threat to its business. Uh, and I think, look, I'm a business reporter by, you know, vocationally, I'm fairly skeptical of CEOs, or I don't wake up in the morning with a lot of sympathy. But I think he did a really good job. I actually think he is, um, I think he's a really interesting guy. I think he 
the generational CEO um, has run that business pretty well. Uh, it is a, a pretty interesting guy to keep an eye on as kind of the next generation of of leadership. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when you just think about the net net, or at least this is how I think about it, you'll tell me how you think about it. The travel industry stops his entire, he see, he's seeing his business in China shut down. He's seeing everything else start to shut down. And then he figures out where the zeitgeist is moving and he, and he moves the company to, okay, so we're not a travel company. We're a, there's a pandemic. You can work from anywhere, go work from anywhere now. And so they sort of become the work from anywhere uh, company. And of course, there's a huge movement out of cities into more rural areas with space, you know, living in New York as you do. I have many friends in New York. The pandemic was challenging because it was hard to actually be outside. Whereas if you live somewhere more rural, you could be outside and it would be fine. And so uh, it may seem very obvious looking back, but you bring us to that time. And it was not necessarily obvious that that was the safe place to skate to if you're Airbnb. Yeah, I think you're asking like a broader question on remote work, which, you know, this was Airbnb, you know, talking its book, right? A, a world that is more mobile, more flexible is good for them. Um, and I, there's a story late in the book that, you know, they had done this uh, Airbnb challenge where they were kind of a, a contest and we let people kind of live from an Airbnb for a year. Um, but Brian Chesky himself moved out of San Francisco and spent, you know, a week at a bunch of different Airbnb properties including one that I think, I suspect he just didn't read the description very carefully. And it was some like fairy princess cottage castle in Santa Monica that had roosters in the backyard and like mini pigs. It was just like all <laughs> one of those hilarious things. Um, I tend to think that the remote work trend is a little overblown. Um, it is easy when you have a job like me or you, but most of the the country you know, A came back, but B never left, didn't have the didn't have the flexibility to do that. And I'm a little sympathetic to CEOs who for a lot of the pandemic, and I tell this story in the book too, the CEO of Goldman Sachs was out at like a weekday lunch in the Hamptons in the summer of twenty twenty, late summer of twenty twenty. And uh, a young woman comes up to him and says, you know, Mr. Solomon, I, I work for you. I'm I'm an analyst at the bank and points to this table of of young people. These are all my colleagues. We took the day off. We came to the beach. And he's privately feeling because these CEOs were in these cities, you know, walking around, seeing the bars packed on Saturday and Sunday and their offices empty on Monday. And I think that tug of war is really worth keeping an eye on. You know, if we are in a recession, you know, it's hard to tell, but certainly that pendulum is going to swing back in favor of management. And I think sort of offering, you're seeing it in tech now, where even before the pandemic, Management, you know, was kind of wary of its workforces. You had these incredibly, choose whatever word you want, but like powerful, outspoken, progressive, coddled workforces who exerted a lot of power over management. And I think the pandemic, um, the market we're in now has given them an opportunity to pull some of that back. So I, I don't know. I think that no white collar worker is going to be expected to be in the office for five days a week ever again all the time. And if we're fighting over which three or four it is, it feels like a sort of silly use of everyone's time to me. And I'm a big fan of of in-person journalism is an apprentice business. I learned how to do it by sitting next to people who 
did it and we're good at it. And I think there's something that's lost in those kinds of businesses by by being fully remote. But maybe I'm just a crank. I don't know. Well, so there's such an interesting one here. So there's an overlay on this discussion that I don't understand why it's not on the cover of the journal once a week, which is we believe that we are, when I say we, I mean me and my category pirates, partners and collaborators, that that we're witnessing the biggest um, new category of human probably since we moved from hunter-gatherers to farmers. And that is um, if you are 35 and above, you are what we call a native analog, which is you grew up in a world where, yes, there was technology, but the technology was an adjunct. It was an add-on. It was a sidecar to the way you lived, work, and played. And it became an increasingly important one over time, but it's still a sidecar. Uh, I'm a native analog. I'm going to guess you are. I am just barely. You're just there, yeah. (laughs) And you and I would rather sit down in person. Whereas with a native digital, I'll never forget this. I asked a native digital after a Zoom session, what did we just do? And she told me we had an in-person meeting. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And so native digitals are literally 180 degree different. Their primary life is digital first and their secondary life is analog. And, and there's a powerful insight here and it sounds so small, but what a native digital, or let me put it this way. If you invite me to your home for a meal and I show up at your place, I'm presented with a native analog problem with a well-known native analog solution, which is I need to get into your house I'm going to knock on your door or ring your doorbell. Or if you're in New York, maybe you have a door person who I can introduce myself to and so forth. Well, a native digital is not going to respond to that native analog problem, which is how do I get into Liz's house and let her know I'm here with an analog solution, even though it's a well-known, well-understood, highly effective analog solution. What they're going to do is send you a text that says here. And, And that simple difference to us, underscores the entire thing, which is digital first, analog second. And as native analogs, we're literally 180 degree different. Okay, if you accept that for a sec, here's the aha. For a native analog, work is a place. And for a native digital, work is a space. And so while there are many native digitals who, who like in-person work, um, they're, I, they're not tethered to it the way native analogs are. And what I wonder about the CEO of Goldman Sachs and the CEO of Google and many uh, other high-profile CEOs with giant uh, knowledge worker labor forces, when they say you have to come back to work, um, they're losing a lot of uh, native digitals. And that's the part when you have native analog CEOs making decisions about how native digitals are going to work, that's where I see risk for companies. I guess that's right. And and it's an interesting observation. And I am, yeah, I'm I'm 36, so I'm right on that edge. I will still occasionally <laughs> text people and say downstairs. Um, but um I think you're right that there's there is a risk that that the people running these companies are fundamentally misunderstanding what's coming 
I think there's a risk on the other side, though, which is to say, I have no trouble understanding why these native digitals, as you call them, either don't want to or don't think they need to be at the office or, you know, approach these meetings differently. But their careers are being shaped by native analogs, which is to say the way that you I think these are cohorts, frankly, that are really worth studying people who came back and people who didn't because uh, they might not think they need to be there. But like, I think that's how you learn. And I think that's how you importantly get promoted. <laughs> right that like you are in some ways playing to a, a test and you can say you can leave resign the test in protest or you can say actually no i think this is the way i'm going to advance and again there's i think there's a certain amount of flexibility that is here to stay and that's great and i love it I, but i also think there's a little bit of professional self-indulgence that was baked in to a lot of the workforce and i think they're gonna realize that a that just isn't gonna fly with you know, the economy the way it is and layoffs happening left and right, but also ultimately robs them of something. Yes. And, and this is why I find this discussion so powerful. There are people in my life who I can look you straight in the eye and say, I absolutely love working with this person. I would do anything for this person. And we've not met in the IRL. Sure. And, uh, I mean, my business partner, Eddie Yoon, and I decided to get into business together and start writing books together before we met in the IRL. <laughs> and of course, if you believe the propaganda coming out of the dating sites, uh, north of 50% of, um, of marriages in the United States today originate digitally. And as I uh, have, have, have come to learn, when I was a young man, you had to have what we called some game. You had to figure out how to walk across the gymnasium <laughs> when everybody was looking terrified and ask the gal to dance and hope like hell she said yes. And you had to figure that out. Well, today, of course, you can't meet a romantic partner unless you have digital game. And so uh, the interesting thing to me is everything you said is true and becomes less true every day because in the work world, here's the here's the aha. There are more native uh, digitals in America than there are native analogs now. And according to a bunch of research that we've seen, uh, if you have a white collar knowledge job in the United States of America, you have a higher degree chance of working for a millennial than you do from uh, working for a baby boomer or a Gen Xer. And so my point is the world is moving more and more native digital over time as the native digitals naturally um, take over. Everything you're saying, I think demographically makes sense to me, and I agree with. And you know, I'm a millennial, and I think we will sort of be that we're that bridge generation, right? Which is like, you know, I think there's some like Rorschach tests where if you play the modem sound, you know, for someone, they either immediately get it or they have no idea what that is, and that's like a pretty <laughs> good dividing line. I suspect I was born in '86, so I suspect maybe if you were born in like the early to mid '90s, it just doesn't mean anything to you. Anybody born after Van Halen 1984 came out, I don't even understand, but. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I just, I just barely made the cutoff. I'm um, I have a lot of legendary native digitals in my life. Uh, yeah. But I think too that like, and again, not every business is like this, but mine is, so I can speak to it with some experience. Like journalism is a weird job. And I remember when I joined the Wall Street Journal, it was, I sat, I was, I joined the M&A teams or the real tip of the spear there. And 
we sat next to the investigations team too. And so there was just people around me and I would listen to them on the phone. You'd listen to them work a source. You would listen to them pressure test a fact. And that just, that's how you learn to do the job. And I don't, I don't know how that gets. Yeah, you can, you can do Zoom meetings and there's tech that's better and it can make everyone feel like they're there. But I mean, the, the actual just day to day of being around people doing the job, they're not actively teaching you. That stuff I think translates okay. It's the other stuff that doesn't yes. that I, I think this gets lost here. If I'm the mentor and you're the mentee, you don't get to see me doing the thing that you're apprenticing. You get yeah, me you don't coaching get taken you. to the meeting. You don't get to see you prepping for the meeting. We don't get to see the drafts of the deck, right? Like that stuff, I think is really ultimately probably more valuable than the one-on-one, one-hour week that you get. Absolutely, a dear friend of mine used to say, very successful executive. When anybody would come to him and ask him to mentor them, he would say, well, the best mentoring I can give you is being legendary at my job. First of all, that is a baller quote. (laughs) But you have to Uh, see the individual being legendary to get the coaching, right? Yeah. To your point. It is a baller quote, isn't it? (laughs) That's fantastic. I'm going to steal it. Um, but no, I, I think we're at a, a point where you're right. There's some real risk baked into these companies. I'm not sure it's it's fundamentally a new risk. Like the the gap is perhaps wider here, but there's always the the trade off that these companies are run by senior people who grew up in a world that was different yes. and are trying to you know steer their company towards where they think the the puck is going to be. Some do it well, some don't. Um, but but yeah, I. I don't know. I sometimes I start to feel like kind of the old guy just shaking my fist at the kids <laughs> on the lawn. But I, I do think there there's um I think this stuff gets over overbaked and um I think there's a lot of value that's lost by, you know, having doing your entire job eighteen inches away from your computer screen and not having having yes. that be your aperture to the world. So. Now I, I I gotta say, I think my favorite quote in the whole book is right at the very, very front. You've got a Doug Parker quote, CEO of American Airlines, and a Winston Churchill quote. And of course, the Doug Parker quote is a legendary quote from 2018 that says, quote, I don't think we're ever going to lose money again. Just fantastic. He's been eating those words for years. Um, What a moron. And one of the things that (laughs) was so interesting to me, maybe this is a side note, part of the economic engineering, of course, the airlines had to do to uh, um, guarantee their future was they had to leverage the value of their miles, their point systems. Because in many cases, and this is a hard thing for even me to wrap my head around, the points business is more valuable than the airline business. Yeah. And so maybe share with me some of the other fun or maybe that or others. You tell me, but you, you focus a lot on the airlines for obvious reasons. But were there key um, things that you learned or key surprises about the airlines for you? Uh, first of all, that remains one of my favorite facts in business. Nobody knows it, but like Airlines don't make money flying large hunks of metal around. They make money from credit cards, which is great. Um, and actually, the sum of the parts analysis that you're an investor is just like worth doing on these things. Investors assign negative value to the parts of airlines that fly airplanes. And you saw these valuations get put on the frequent flyer programs. Um, in and, the and by the markets. way, as a side note, 
Once you understand that, you then understand that the airlines were one of the first creators of cryptocurrencies. Because that's what an airline mile is. Airline points are cryptocurrencies. They're the creation of a new type of store of value. Sounds a lot like a cryptocurrency. It's 100% digital. Sounds a lot like a cryptocurrency. And can be exchanged with approved vendors to buy shit. Sounds like a cryptocurrency. And the fact that they didn't actually turn them into cryptocurrencies (laughs) is one of the greatest failures in the history of business of lost opportunity, in my opinion. But <laughs> that's just me. This is also like when you realize that by some measure, Starbucks is like the sixth largest bank in the country, right? <laughs> just the, the float that their like, customers what? have given them. Basically <laughs> that's a lot of lattes. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I mean, the airlines and you, that that quote, um, there's a reason it is the first words of the book that you read it's right there on the, on the front page. Um, you know, the airlines had come into 2020 having forgotten a basic fact about all businesses, but airlines in particular, which is that it is just a boom and bust industry. It is incredibly capital intensive. It is incredibly economically sensitive. It is sensitive to exogenous shocks like 9-11. And they forgot, they had this this really champagne decade um, and they'd forgotten that they're in this business. And, and, you know, I think actually the first airline CEO we meet in the book is not Doug Parker, I don't think, but, but Ed Bastian from Delta and he's keynoting the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show in 2020, which you will rightly note is a weird place for an airline to be. That's a gadget convention, fundamentally. And he's giving this talk about, you know, they're rolling out these biometric eye scans that will show you your itinerary only in your language and these like robotic exoskeletons for baggage handlers. And um, I swear to God, like positioning their seatback entertainment um systems as like a streaming platform he's saying people cry more on airplanes so it could be good for for tearjerkers i mean all fine but like really just showed i think that the industry had had become blind to the fact that every 10 years something terrible happens in their business um the other thing about airlines that's compelling here and we can have a debate about the word bailout and whether it was worth it but they are fundamentally national assets. They are national security assets in private hands, which is just it's an uncomfortable place to live because you can't. I ultimately am a defender of the of the airline aid. I'm actually a defender of most things the government did from a financial perspective here. I think like A minus um across the board and are the reason that um that things didn't completely crash. Uh but you know, like the idea, think about the travel hell that we've had in 2021 and 2022. Can you imagine how much worse that would have been had hundreds of thousands of workers lapsed in their training, lapsed in their schedules, lapsed in their hours and had to be kind of restarted? I mean, but but yes, yeah, so again, it's a feature, not a bug. These are national resources that are privately held. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I think um, the Internet is that today. Um, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a critical national resource that we cannot live without. It's wild to me that, that Wi-Fi is not a public utility. Right. In this day and age. It seems nuts. Well, and there's some people that say internet access should be a right. Uh, we had, um, God bless him, Marty Cooper, the, uh, inventor of the cell phone, one of the greatest Americans alive today. He's in his nineties and he's, he's, he's an American treasure. And his whole focus of his life right now is a digital divide. And when, when we had him on, he was, you know, talked about how upsetting it was for him as the inventor of the cell phone 
to see kids sitting outside a Taco Bell hanging off the Taco Bell Wi-Fi to get access to Zoom school. Uh, and so there is an interesting discussion, I think, to be had there. The, the one thing that pisses me off, though, is when we do when we the taxpayer does stuff, whether it's for the airlines or for SVB or for anybody else. Um, another friend of mine used to use the phrase the give to get. What what is the give to get? So, um, for example, uh, most people don't realize that in the financial crisis, um, the U.S. government made money. A lot of money. And so that that's a good deal. The banks paid that shit back with interest. And so, yes, we, quote unquote, bailed out Wall Street, but we, the taxpayer, made money. And so in situations like this where, you know, we have boom bust industries, we have massively capital intensive industries, we have industries that with a tremendous amount of risk in them. When the government, the taxpayer is going to step in and save them. Uh, I want to see more of that and, and less of the we'll just give you a fuck ton of money and good go with God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was from a financial point of view, jury's not not back yet, but um your treasury got warrants in all these companies at um extremely cheap prices. Um so we'll we'll see. But um I mean look the Treasury's own analysis of that, which was a little more favorable than some others were, but that um you know that it saved a lot of money in A, like the government would have to charter a lot of planes to get its own employees and get stuff where it needed to go, right? So there's just you know, by keeping the airlines in business and they were required to maintain the routes, not necessarily the frequency, but the routes that they had been running before the pandemic. Um and again, that just goes back to the fact that these are national resources. The government needs airplanes to get places. Yes. Um and then, you know, it's sort of a supercharged version of the Paycheck Protection Program, which uh, covered payroll for small businesses. You know, half of the airline aid was just paying the workers, which is money the government's going to spend one way or the other, because if they all get fired, they're going to be on unemployment. And that is a much less efficient system than just having the government sign their paychecks. And by the way, on the PPP, you know, we lo I love to talk about what the government got wrong. Best I can understand on the PPP loans, first of all, they save countless small businesses, jobs, and families, countless. Uh, secondarily, it appears to me, and if you know different, I'd love to hear it, Liz, that the stance the federal government took at the time under the Trump administration was essentially, if you can clear a fairly low bar, we're going to give you this money. We're not going to bury you in red tape. And so... Their attitude was, we'll give almost anybody money and we're going to circle back later and make sure we get the criminals. And here's the thing. They went back and got the fucking criminals. They got, yes. And it 100%. doesn't get talked about very much. There was a guy that used to uh, work at a company that I was at years ago. We fired him for being a piece of shit. He was putting dishwashers and shit on his company account. So we fired him. But we were nice to him. We didn't call the cops on him. We probably should have. Anyway, this was 20 years ago. This bastard, come to find out, sets up a bunch of fake companies and gets several millions of dollars of PPP. Well, guess what? He went to jail. <laughs> the piece of shit went to jail. And so I started to do some homework, and it appears 
there was a very uh, uh, deliberate program by the government to then go back and make sure, and I'm sure there's people who, who got away with it, but many of them went to jail. Yeah, I'm, I'm ultimately a defender of the PPP. Um, you know, there's always a trade-off in getting money out the door quickly and getting it exactly where it needs to go and in government that's called means testing. And where you draw the means testing line, uh, you know, really determines how, how much uptake you're going to have in the program, right? Social Security is very, very crudely means tested, mostly by age, right? Uh, Medicare is, is not all means. Look, if you're over 65, you just get it. Um, this was, uh, I think, the right move. And to your point, they knew there would be fraud. They went back and got a lot of it. But this was a pretty well-designed government program. They ended up, you know, I, I report in the book, they'd sort of done the math and ended up calculating the need with it to within, I don't know, 10 or $20 billion. It Most of it got used, uh, mostly as intended. Yep. And also remember that, like, in a true economic crisis, like, yeah, there's places you really want to get money, but you're actually just trying to capitalize the system. So I'm not defending giving money to criminals who spent it on whatever, swimming pools, but like GDP fell off a cliff and the way to get GDP back up is to have people spending money on stuff. So right. um, I'm, I'm actually, I, I will defend that program. Uh, I don't really understand why it became a little bit of a punching bag. I thought, it was, I thought it was pretty well done. I thought it was incredibly well done. Now, the flip side, of course, is our government gave but a by lot- by the way, I would, I would add, can I add one other yeah, thing yeah, there? Yeah, you can add anything you want. Which is, um, it, it was a I think a, a more of a political statement bombshell than was appreciated at the time, because the last crisis, the question was about too big to fail. And PPP made the counterpoint, which is that these things are too small to fail, yes. which I actually found, I, I think I found just really interesting. And it's also, by the way, as a side note, as somebody who uh, I'm a self-described radical independent politically, and I can't stand it when, you know, one side uh, doesn't give the other side any credit for anything and vice versa, right? So uh, the Trump administration has taken a lot of criticism for a lot of things that I think were very warranted. However, on this one, for the most part, they got it very right. And to me, the posture of give money to small businesses now, ask questions later with a fairly low bar on the test. And we go back. The go back part, the Biden administration is now getting credit for started under Trump. Biden continues. Excellent. I'll vote for that. What what I do want to ask you about, though, is so the 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 criticism is we gave away way too much money. And of course, we printed about 40 percent more money. At least that's what the Wall Street Journal tells me. And so um, how do you how do you sort of connect? There's Somewhere between I've read numbers as low as four and five, and I've read numbers as much as 10 and 15 million people who were in the workforce pre-COVID who are now not. Um, and of course, uh, and this is a hard concept for a lot of people to understand, one that I didn't realize people didn't understand. When you present, when you print 40% more money, you devalue the money that we all have. And so some combination of giving away a lot of money and or printing a lot of money seems to have created an effect of people being out of the economy. Do you have any particular insight or opinion about that component of it, Liz? Clearly, the spigot was open too wide for too long. I think that last round of stimulus checks was unnecessary, ultimately. Um, 
most people, and this is true up and down the income or wealth ladder, came out of the pandemic wealthier than they went into it. So, you know, if you were trying to forestall like a, a, a mass poverty event, um, great job, little little overkill. Um, and then on the monetary side, pretty clearly the Fed was a little too slow to start raising interest rates, not by a lot, but by a couple of months. And the result of that was that they had to hike rates faster and farther and more steeply, and that it just injects volatility and um, people are wrong-footed, which is, you know, how we ended up, as we discussed earlier, with the banking crisis. Um, but I think you're talking about missing workers, and they're, they're you're right, they're missing. We don't quite know where they are. Some of that, I think, will, people will have to come back as those pandemic savings get spent down. Um, estimates I've seen were excess savings and somewhere in the neighborhood of two, two and a half trillion dollars. Last time I checked on this, which was a couple of months ago, about a third to a half of it had been spent down, which means that by the end of this year, people are going to be back to sort of their cushions they had before. And then we realize they had to go back to work. The other piece of it is, you know, we were talking earlier sort of about the kind of national trauma um, that I think forced a lot of people to reassess what they want in life and what they care about. And in particular, let's imagine you're a two-income household. The second income is $60,000, but you're paying $40,000 for childcare. And you're thinking, what, a, what am I doing? You know? So I think, you know, until we right-size some of the costs on, um, on that, that are a drag on, on earned income, you're just going to make, you're going to see people continue to make that trade-off and say, I don't really need to be here at all. Um, but I think some of it's a little overblown. Like, people have to work to make money that hasn't fundamentally changed in the last three years. So when people need money, they'll go back to work. Not everybody can live in mom's basement, can they? No. And and look, they're, they're the counterpoint to the thing that I said about sort of um, every level of wealth increasing. And I think 2022 was the first year on record where the one top 1%, their wealth fell and the bottom 50% increased. The counterpoint to that is that most financial assets are owned by the very wealthy. And, you know, we're now in a bull, a bull cycle in the stock market, financial assets. And so that that is a drag on the sort of equalizing um, impact that a lot of the stimulus had. Yeah, I get that. And I'm no very far from an economist. The, the thing that makes me wonder is um, because we went from a, a, a quarter point interest rate to almost 5% in about a year. Um, we've destroyed the home, uh, retail home business, right? People can't, the, people can't get loans anymore, house prices, all this sort of stuff. And so I just wonder about um, if, if the average person, their primary asset is their home, um, this changes things um, a lot for them. So I, I, the calculus on, on, on that piece of it, um, devaluing people's homes and making the cost of capital go up for people buying new homes. And I, I don't know what the trade-off there is, I guess you, you, you're, you're, you're making faces at me. <laughs> What's going on? In no, sorry. I, um, I think people forget that markets go up and down, right? So when you see, and by the way, home prices went up in February again after six months of falling. So I'm not sure the Fed is is directionally as successful there as people think. But um, yes, they are, the, the value of the house is coming down, which makes people feel bad, but they don't realize that the interest rate policy for the 10 years before that made the house 
passively more valuable than it ought probably to have been. Things you mean I can't expect but- a thirty percent <laughs> increase in the value of my home every year, Liz? Is that what you're no, telling me? Come but, on! But it feels it feels worse when things go down than it feels good when things go up, <laughs> exactly. and that's just like a that's the psychology under underlying with the entire you know financial system. So, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap, Liz? I don't think so. No, this was this was very fun, wide ranging, and um, very thoughtful. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad you came on. I really, really appreciate your book. Um, I have a sense for what kind of work went into this book, and I think when a thoughtful uh, person like yourself um, does this level of work, it's a very powerful thing. So I I want you to know I really appreciate it. Thank you. Actually, one thing, if you wouldn't mind, if you if there's one to me up for ten seconds to talk about uh, what I do now, we, I yeah, left what the do you do now? To start. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, so I I'm the business and finance editor at Semaphore, which is a new global news organization we launched in the fall. I joined from the Wall Street Journal, where I'd spent uh, nine years covering finance there, and um, we're trying to rethink the news. Um, and so I would encourage you know you to sign up and go to semaphore.com. You can see what we've been writing and sort of how we think about the news, which is... And how are you trying to reinvent the news? I'm curious about that because I'm a news junkie. Yeah, I think there's this... So the thing to, to know about media is that everyone hates it. It is just uniquely unpopular as an industry and a product. And what's funny is that other industries, if whatever you said, I, I don't like this you know, whatever product, like this product sucks, they would do some market research. And so what don't you like about it? Could we make, you know, uh, my boss talks about this, you wouldn't like the razors, could we make the handle a little longer? Like, is it right? Like just very basic um, product market fit. And instead in media, the answer is, you don't know what you're talking about. You're getting lied to just like eat your vegetables. And um, I think that's been a losing proposition for a long time. So, uh, you know, you'll see in our stories, we try to um, really break down the the sort of atomic form of news, which is the 800-word article that has not changed in hundreds of years, and say, well, what, what are the inputs here? Like, here's the news, here's the scoop, whatever it is at the top. These are the facts, and they have to be right. And here's genuinely what I think about it. I've been covering the industry a long time. I have some thoughts. They're not hot takes, but it's an informed, reported opinion. Let's elevate a competing voice. Here's where I might be wrong, right? And just try to kind of break down, we call it exposed architecture a little bit, but just give you the pieces and then let you decide what you want to do with them rather than sort of baking them into this sort of strange pie that comes out of the oven and everyone's like, what is this? I don't, I don't know what I'm getting. Um, so it's a long-winded way of saying we, uh, we're trying to be thoughtful and nimble and bring reporters like me closer to our readers and sources and subjects. And one thing that I really liked about this conversation, you know, I want my stories to feel like you're talking to a smart friend at a party about a thing that happened um, rather than taking journalism as some kind of like received wisdom coming down from the mountaintops on on tablets. Well, and candidly, um, I think this is a huge breakthrough area for reporters because um, do we want you to report the news? Absolutely. And a, a true journalist uh, uh, they seem to be uh, decreasing at rapid speed. But I think there's a space between journalist and commentator, which is what you're describing. And I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I have to think about it. The words to describe it, which is journalist providing context based on their experience, not necessarily opinion. I like Trump. I don't like Trump. Citibank's good. Citibank's bad. It was a good quarter. It was a bad quarter. Whatever. No, 
this is what happened in the quarter. This is what the president did or said. And then based on my experience, here's some insight about that, but not, it is so fucking partisan. It's, it's, it's barely consumable. I mean, you really have to work to find something where to your point on the architecture around here, we call it uh, mental scaffolding. I want to understand the mental scaffolding, the context by which you use to come to this. Because I think that's a powerful conversation. And we may or may not disagree with the scaffolding. Or we may agree or disagree, but, but I, I don't, I want to get into it by knowing what that scaffolding is. The expression, where are you coming from? Right. By disclosing where you're coming from, we can now have a much more thoughtful conversation. I, I completely agree. And I mean, look, I'm a news junkie. I'm a scoops hound at heart. And so sort of keeping that that DNA of breaking news keeps you honest, right, from falling too far down that commentary slippery slope you mentioned. Um, but also, I think it's the reason that people should might care what you think about something, which is that you broke the story. Like, you know, it's a cost of admission to to being thoughtful and, and providing some context and analysis around it. So um, it's been a total loss so far. We've been at it uh, about five months. Congratulations. You know, you know startup years. It's I do. I know them like very well. Years, so. <laughs> yeah. So no, I encourage you to go to stem4.com and check it out. Absolutely. Thank you, Liz. I do, de- deeply appreciate it. And you are welcome back anytime. Thank you. This was a really fun chat. Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary Liz Hoffman. Her book is out. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. It's called Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. And uh, as you know, word of mouth is, was, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. And so if you enjoy these oddcasts, uh, we would appreciate your WOM and we appreciate your digital WOM. That is to say, when you share these oddcasts on social media. All right. We would like to thank, thank you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. It means the world to me and everybody around here. If you want to learn to be a category designer, go to CategoryPirates.com and sign up for your free uh, category design accelerator course. That's CategoryPirates.com. It's free, gratis, free. And uh, please remember the legendary people at Doctors Without Borders who are saving lives in some of the toughest Uh, most challenging places on planet earth doctors without borders.org all right i need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes and this oddcast is the sole property of the lockhead oddcast network it does contain content known to the state of california to cause radically non-obvious thinking and uh, exponential results all oddcasts do contain nuts uh, and all uh, rights do remain perturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, shaman, accountant, yoga instructor, mystic, and of course, category designer before doing anything about anything that you heard on any of today's podcast. Never forget, everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. We're produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top drum. If you're a little grumpy and you're a little old, And even if you're young and a little grumpy, you'll love grumpy old geeks. Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed & Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the win. We record in Dolby ADHD technology on Squadcast.fm, the platform for 
remotepodcastingsquadcast.fm. Katie Lang was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Sam Bankman-Fried. Sorry, Sammy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.